and welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. This is a science podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Taryn Lobenstein, and I'm a marine biologist. And I'm your other host, Dr. Ben McAllister, and I am a physicist. This is our third episode. Hopefully you've heard or enjoyed some of the earlier ones, but with episode three here, we've actually got something a little bit different for you, because before The Uncertainty Principle was the podcast that you're listening to now, it was actually a live show at the Perth Fringe Festival for the last couple of years, all the way back to 2019, actually. Yeah, we've been doing this project for, for so long, and and we recorded all of those episodes, so we thought yeah. it would be fun to like release some of the live shows. So yeah, it's a bit the different. Secret yeah, secret lost tapes. I mean, the format is, <laughs> is broadly the same. I mean, it's like one of us researches a topic in some depth and explains things to the other person, and the other person is there as kind of like a sounding board, kind of like a guide to take you along on the journey. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to listen back to this one because I haven't actually heard any of the recordings of our, our old shows. You know, we just we did the live shows and then we said, all right, good job, and and moved on. So it'll be great to hear some of this content, which I think is still really fresh. So we're talking about something that's actually really close to your heart and, and brain, I would say. Is that accurate, yeah. Ben? No, that's absolutely right. We'd be remiss not to mention the fact that at the 2020 uh, Perth Fringe Festival, where this episode was recorded, we were sponsored by the ARC Center of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. They uh, gave us some sponsorship that enabled the show to occur. Yeah, that was really nice of them to do. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh, and also with the live shows, we did this really fun thing where we have this quiz game at the end. Where oh, the had... game! Yeah. I forgot about that. I was yeah. not very good at that game. No, we were very bad at the game, in fact. That's right. It was us against the audience and the guests. So it's just going to be like a regular episode of the show. Uh, we'll, we'll jump into it in a moment. So you might hear audience applauding. You might hear us uh, reintroducing the show in a short format. And then we'll get we'll get uh, cracking on with the content. So shall we jump in, Taryn? Yeah, let's jump into it. Clapping is allowed, in fact, encouraged. Welcome to the Uncertainty Principle. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Noongar people of the Wajuk Nation, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. So thank you again for coming out to see the show. We are very excited to see you. You are in for an hour of scientific discovery, but don't worry, it's not going to be like a lecture. We're going to talk about some science, but we're also going to explore it through the lenses of culture and history so that we get a full, well-rounded perspective of the matter. My name is Taryn Lobenstein. I am your marine biologist co-host. And over here... My name is Ben McAllister. I'm your physicist co-host. And also, we are very proud to say that oh. we are both newly doctors. <laughs> so. Listen, this is our last show. We really have to just ring it for all it's worth, because yeah, no look, one's going to be impressed with that. I wasn't going to bring it up, but Taryn's <laughs> right. In academia, nobody gives a shit. Everyone's got a PhD, so you got to get it where you can get it, all right? <laughs> <sighs> Now, Ben has gone ahead and prepared tonight's episode. So, Ben, what are we going to be talking about tonight? Tonight we're going to be talking about probably the most mysterious substance in the universe. It's huge, it's everywhere, it's all around you, passing through your very body right now, and we have practically no idea what it is. We're talking about dark matter. Well, that's slightly frightening, but I am excited to hear more about it. A couple it. of dark matter fans in the audience. <laughs> yes! 
While we're on the topic of dark matter, we would like to thank our sponsor for uh, Fringe. That's the ARC Center of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, who do dark matter research themselves. In they fact, do. I'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show. Yeah. So we're also going to have a special guest along the way. So if dark matter isn't your thing, this probably isn't the right show for you. But we're going to hear about a completely different topic, so we'll have something for everyone. Also, at the end of the show, we're going to play a fun little game where you can test your scientific bullshit meters against ours and... We tend to lose, so you'll probably yeah, do pretty well. Hasn't been this going game. great for us. So. Called science fiction versus science faction, and we are we are not good at this game, guys. So don't worry about any of that for now. Just sit back, relax. If you have a beverage, enjoy that, and listen to Ben tell us about some dark matter science. Indeed, Taryn's going to be silent for the next fifty-seven minutes. She's not going to say a word. <laughs> She's just going to be reacting with her face and like maybe a, a few gasps. Yeah. Okay. So, Taryn, what do you think you're made up of? Tell me about it. Um, atoms, cells, like, I don't know what specific unit you want. There's okay. also, I feel like, a lot of, like, microbes on your body. Okay, yeah, good answers, all of them. But yeah, pretty much, we're made up of, well, if you were to zoom in on your arm, for example, you'd see biological cells at a certain point. That would also be true of the microbes in your body, as you've said. And if you zoomed in on those cells, you'd see molecules, combinations of atoms that make up those cells. If you zoomed in on those atoms again, you'd see the things that make up atoms, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And if you zoomed in on those protons and neutrons, you'd see these little things called quarks. And it turns out that, yeah, quarks, quarks and electrons, those same quarks and electrons that make up you also make up the chair you're sitting on. They make up the planet. They make up the sun. They make up the black hole at the center of our galaxy. And indeed, all the other galaxies that there are out there. So, like, that's pretty much all there is, right? We're all just quarks. Yeah. out here in space. We're all quarks. Everything is quarks. Well, for a long time, we thought that was the case. And over the last several hundred years, we've developed a very detailed understanding of the way those quarks and other fundamental particles behave. And we were like, hey, that's kind of everything there is, right? Well, it turns out that's not quite true. We know now that all that stuff, people, planets, stars, black holes, all of that stuff makes up just about 5% of all the stuff in the universe. What? Uh, yeah, about 5%. 5%. What's the other 95%? Well, good show for you to be at, Taryn. <laughs> so about 25% of it is this stuff called dark matter, which we're going to talk about primarily tonight. The other 70%, yeah. we're going to have to do a whole episode just about that. It's called dark energy. We know pretty much nothing about it. We think it has something to do with the expansion of the universe, but... At least for the moment, it's kind of a little bit less interesting than the dark matter. So we're just, we're just going to focus on like the matter sector of the universe today, of which all that stuff, people, planets, stars, galaxies, that's like one-sixth of the matter, and the dark matter is about five-sixths. Wait, but I thought matter was energy. Isn't that a, like an Einstein thing? Yes, matter is a form of energy, so the dark energy is energy not associated with matter. So when we break up the universe into okay. like all of the energy, all the stuff we understand is like 5%, 25% is in the dark matter, and 75% is like... So, yeah, we'll get back to that one of these days. But for the moment, we're focusing on the dark matter, which correctly, as you've said, is a form of energy. Few things we know about it. It's dark. We can't see it. It doesn't interact with light. It's matter, which means it has mass. It has stuff to it. It experiences gravity. And it's actually all around us and passing through your bodies right now like a cosmic ghost that you can't see, touch, or feel. Spooky, right? That's, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like the thought of just constantly being... I mean, I guess, but if there was like any negative effects of it, surely we'd have figured that out by now, right? doesn't really matter whether you like it or not, Taryn. <laughs> it's true. So... <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> How do we know about this stuff? I know what you're wondering. If we can't see, touch, or feel it as it passes through our body. And Taryn, I'd like to take you on a journey. 
We're going to go back in time to the beginning of the 20th century, and everything's going just great. Everything's going great. We've got a pretty good understanding of particles. It's going to get a lot better in the next 100 years, but at least at the time, we're like, nice, we know what's going on. We've been drilling down, better and better microscopes. We know what's going on. And then there's a few people who are looking out into space, making observations of gravity, what we would call astronomical observations, basically looking at the way stuff moves around in space. So we should define gravity, probably, because we're going to talk about it for a little bit. Taryn, what do you think gravity is? Gravity is what makes things fall when you drop them. That's true. <laughs> Give it up for Taryn and hey. of gravity. In addition to she being... She is not a physicist. <laughs> in addition to being the thing that makes things fall, gravity is a fundamental force of nature that is experienced by anything that has mass. Anything that's heavy, you've got a heavy thing, like an apple, you've got another heavy thing, like Isaac Newton's head, and they're going to be attracted to each other via the force of gravity and be pulled towards each other. And the more mass there is, the more gravity, the stronger the force of gravity that's generated. Oh, so that's like what keeps all the planets like... Circling around the sun. Hey, thank you for doing a bit of my work for me. That is what keeps all the planets orbiting the sun. That's exactly right. So when you're looking at the way stuff moves around in space, whether it's planets orbiting the sun, stars orbiting the center of a galaxy, galaxies orbiting giant galactic superclusters, the main force that governs the way those things behave is gravity. It's the main force out on those length scales with things of that size. So... It's 1933, and a Swiss astronomer named Fritz Zwicky is looking at galaxy clusters, so structures much, much bigger than a single galaxy. He's looking at huge mega clusters of galaxies and the way the galaxies move around inside those clusters. Okay. Sounds like a pretty cool thing to do, right? It does. It also sounds like a weird, like, space-themed cereal, like, galaxy mega clusters. (laughs) Part of a healthy breakfast. Indeed, a very small part. Uh, Okay, so uh, he's looking at these (laughs) galaxy mega clusters coming soon to a coals near you, and he's measuring the individual speeds of individual galaxies within those clusters. And from doing that, he's able to say, like, okay, the galaxies are moving this fast, therefore there needs to be this much gravity holding the cluster together, because the galaxies are all zipping around, and if there wasn't gravity holding the cluster together, they would all just fly off into space, right? Can I ask how he's measuring the speed of a galaxy? With a telescope, looking at it, moving around on the sky. So it's kind of like a speedometer, but just you point it up. Well, you just kind of, <laughs> yeah, like track it as it moves across the sky. You do some relatively complicated like geometry, essentially, and you can figure out like roughly how fast it's moving. Okay, cool. And, and so you could do this back in... 1933, when? yeah, wow. absolutely. Oh, yeah, we can do crazy shit with telescopes. <laughs> Have been for a long time. It's insane. When you consider, this is a sidebar, when yeah. you consider no human being has been further than the moon, we know an astonishing amount about the way shit happens out in space. But that's yeah. kind of neither here nor there. I guess it is actually here nor there for tonight. But anyway, <laughs> so we're looking at the speeds with these galaxies are moving around, and he's trying to figure out how much gravity there needs to be to keep the clusters together, and from that he can calculate how much mass there needs to be to provide that gravity. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, then he calculates the amount of mass there needs to be, and he counts up all the galaxies, and he estimates how much they weigh. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a bit of uncertainty here, because of course we can't weigh a galaxy, but he, he, he gets an estimate for the amount of mass. And if the number that he calculated and the number that he counted up were kind of close to each other, but maybe a little bit out, you'd probably go, oh, fair enough, that's the uncertainty in the weight of the galaxies. But they're not close to each other. They're really, really, really far apart. There needs to be way, 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 way more invisible matter that he can't see and count, providing additional gravity to keep that galaxy cluster together. And this is the first really good piece of observational evidence for dark matter. In the preceding decades, there were a few other pieces of evidence. People had like looked out and been like, oh, that is a bit funny. But this was the first like really rigorously calculated view of dark matter. So if I'm understanding correctly, 
just to give you like a metaphor, it would be like if you had a magnet and you expected the magnet to, I don't know, be like kind of strong, like, like a refrigerator. And, and instead of that, it just took whatever you're holding and flung it across the room. Yeah. Like that's the big difference in terms of the, yeah. the gravity that he expected versus that he saw. Correct. You'd be forced to conclude that there's another big invisible magnet somewhere that okay. you couldn't see, right? Because he could see stuff and he could figure out roughly how heavy it was, and then he could calculate that there needed to be way, way more stuff that he couldn't see. So he called it dark matter, stuff that's dark, that has mass. Dark matter. Okay. Now, a couple of decades go by, and everyone's like, that's pretty cool, Fritz, but it's the 30s. There's a lot of shit going on. We're not that interested. (laughs) And then it's like, now the 1950s and 1960s, and this woman named Vera Rubin and her long-term collaborator, Kent Ford, are measuring things called galactic rotation curves, which you can think of as a measure of how fast a galaxy is rotating as a function of distance from the center. So we know like galaxies like the Milky Way, there's like a big black hole in the middle, and all the matter is like spinning around it, right? So if you were to like look at a galaxy like the Milky Way or another galaxy, you might be like, okay, how fast is this bit of matter out here moving compared to how fast this bit is moving compared to how fast this bit is moving? And you could put a plot together, try and visualize with me. On the y-axis, you would have the speed with which it's moving. And on the horizontal axis, or the x-axis, you would have distance from the center of the galaxy. Okay. And we can kind of calculate how we would expect these curves to look because we can, again, look at all the stuff we can see in the galaxy. We can count up how much mass there is, and based on how much mass, we can count up how much gravity there should be. And then based on how much gravity there should be, we can estimate how fast the matter should be allowed to move because matter orbiting the center of a galaxy needs a force pulling it into the center, otherwise it would just fly off into space. It's like if you're spinning a ball around on a string. Ball on a string, you spin it around, there needs to be a force holding the ball in towards the center, otherwise it's just going to fly away. In the context of the ball on a string, it's the tension in the string that keeps it in towards the center. And if you swing it too fast, then the tension's not enough and it breaks and the ball flies away. In the context of the galaxy, it's the gravity from all the stuff in the middle of the galaxy that's pulling the stuff on the outside in that allows it to keep orbiting. So the gravity is like the string. Yes, the gravity is the string that keeps stuff orbiting the center. So you can calculate what you expect this galactic rotation curve to look like. Most of the stuff we can see, all the black holes and stars and shit, are all lumped up near the middle. And so the gravity should be strongest near the middle. And then it should be weaker on the outside, where the the matter is a lot less dense that we can see. So we would expect the curve to go like up, up, up and then decay pretty quickly. By the time you get out here, it shouldn't be spinning very fast fast at all. But do you want to take a guess at what we actually see when we measure these mm. things, Taryn? Does it just keep going up, 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 up? It goes up, and then it, like, flatlines. Okay. So the stuff on the outside of the galaxy is spinning way too quickly to be explained if the only thing providing gravity that holds it in is the stuff we can see. All right. So again, much like Fritz Swicky with his galaxy clusters, Vera Rubin and Kent Ford are saying... Our observations indicate that there has to be a lot of invisible stuff in the outer parts of galaxies, or actually all over the galaxy. It's a uniform envelope that they call the dark matter halo, which is how we know it's around us right now, passing through us in this very room, and we just can't see, touch, or feel it. We're sitting in a big soup of this stuff. Okay, there's one more piece of observational evidence for dark matter I want to go through, and it's a really important one, because it hints a little bit at some of the properties of dark matter. It's also the hardest one to understand, so strap in. Alrighty. Here we go. This is observational evidence based on something called gravitational strong lensing, which is... Can I just, sorry, can I just interrupt and say all of these things that you keep saying, like, they all just sound like excellent band names. Yeah. Uh, Every one of them. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they were purposely doing that when they named it, but every time I'm like, that would be a good band name. That would be a good band name. The galactic rotation curves. Yeah, Yeah. that's not bad. We've actually got a show later tonight. (laughs) I don't know, downstairs. The Um, uncertainty principle after dark. Yes, after dark matter. Uh, That was nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... 
Gravitational strong lensing. This is a thing Mr. Einstein told us about. Einstein determined through general relativity, his theory of gravity, blah, 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 that you can get matter, so much matter, that there's so much gravity that light itself will actually bend around the heavy thing that's creating the gravity. So we see this effect in space sometimes where there's like a big heavy galaxy cluster lump or something, and there's something bright on the far side of it, that the light from that thing that's bright on the far side of the clump will bend around the object, and we can see an image of it on the left and an image of it on the right. And based on the amount of lensing that we see, how bent the light is, we can again get an estimate of the amount of mass that there has to be in the heavy thing that's bending the light. Yeah. Okay, so in the bullet cluster, we saw a bunch of galaxies colliding. It's like a big cluster of galaxies. And we could see what was happening to the matter that we could see in the galaxies. It's like a galaxy hitting a galaxy. It's chaotic. Shit's going everywhere. All the stuff we can see is like smashing into each other and spraying all over the place. And then, by using gravitational lensing maps, we can determine where all of the mass in the system is going, mm -hmm. based on like how the light is being lensed in these colliding galaxies. And what we saw was whilst the regular matter that we could see was all crashing into each other and going all over the place, the dark matter, the majority of the mass, just went straight through. So it doesn't interact with the regular matter, and mm -hmm. it doesn't interact with itself, which is our first clue as to the properties of dark matter. Yeah. So it doesn't interact with anything? Well, it interacts very, very weakly. And we're going to talk about that so in a minute. So it's like the introvert of the galaxy. Yes. It's like, like, I don't want to go to a party with all those, that other, <laughs> other regular cool matter. particles. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't even want to interact with myself. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Not going to touch that one. Um, okay, <laughs> so... It just doesn't sound like that much fun at parties. Is all no, no. Uh, okay, great. So, we've got a bit of a hint at the properties of dark matter. What do we know about dark matter so far? It's dark, it's invisible, it doesn't interact with light. In a particle physics sense, we say it doesn't interact with photons. I'm going to use this word photons a lot. All you need to know is that photons are the particles that make up light. The light coming out of there, the light that comes out of your phone, every bit of light is made up of photons. So dark matter doesn't interact with photons, doesn't reflect or give off photons, so we can't see it. It has mass. It affects gravity. That's the only way we actually know it's out there is because we can see it pulling on stuff even though we can't see it. It's all around us. We're sitting in a soup of it right now and it doesn't interact with us. It just passes right on through. So what could it be? Let's find out. Before we can talk about what dark matter is, we have to talk a little bit about the fundamental forces of nature. There are four of them. Gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. I'm not going to talk about the nuclear forces tonight because they're not that relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but these four fundamental forces, just as an aside, by the way, like we don't really pretend to know how or why any of these things work. It's really like observational. We see shit happening and we write down mathematical equations that like describe what happens. And we can explain everything we see in terms of these four things: gravity, electromagnetism, and the two nuclear forces. But like we don't have a deep understanding of like why. We just kind of know that it is that's just really like yeah. we just accept it and we're like that's that's how it is well, it's not about accepting it it's more about like what <laughs> else can you really do <laughs> like yeah. you see like gravity happening and you go like okay these are the laws that govern gravity and then you try and study it and figure out more okay. and doing stuff like that is how people found dark matter anyway so gravity we know dark matter experiences gravity it has to or we wouldn't even know it was there electromagnetism let's talk about that force for a minute electromagnetism is the main force that you in your day-to-day -day lives actually feel in fact, right now, the reason you're not falling through the chair you're sitting in is because the particles in your butt and the particles in the chair are holding tight to each other electrically and repelling each other. Same reason if I grab this microphone, my hand doesn't go right through it is because the particles in the microphone and the particles in my hand are strongly bonded through electromagnetism and they repel each other. There's a bit of a subtlety here which is going to be related. So 
Every force that occurs needs what we call a force-carrying particle, something that's shot back and forth between the things participating in the force to make the force occur. In the context of electromagnetism, what's going on is that particles are actually shooting photons, particles of light, at each other. And those photons are exchanging energy between the things and acting as like a repellent or attractive force. So if I've got a, a proton and a proton, two positively charged things, the reason they push away from each other is actually because on a quantum level, they're shooting photons at each other. And that energy is being imparted and they're, they're shooting off into the So distance. when you say on a quantum level, yes. what do you mean by that? I mean on a very, very small individual particle length scale. Thank okay. you, Karen, for pulling me up on that. Um, <laughs> Listen, most of us are not physicists in the room. Okay. Just falling along what? with all you What are you guys. doing here? <laughs> uh, okay. I am a marine biologist. I study fish. They're so much bigger than that. Okay. Okay, so electromagnetism. In order to experience electromagnetism, the force that we feel when we touch stuff and don't go through it, we need to interact with photons. Are you seeing where I'm going with this, Taryn? No. Okay. <laughs> Shit. Well, because we know dark matter is invisible and doesn't interact with photons, yes. that also explains why we can't oh, touch or feel it. Oh, yeah, I just it spell it out. Sorry. Experience, it doesn't experience the electromagnetic force, which is weird, right? I mean, every other particle we know about that has any kind of like electrical stuff inside it, charged particles like protons or neutrons, experiences the electromagnetic force. So, ah. what's up with dark matter? What is up with dark matter? What we is need... up with dark matter? If you figure it out, let me know. Uh, we need to. <laughs> We need to look at what we call the standard model of particle physics, or the SM of PP, as I have it in my notes. Uh, so, standard model of particle physics you can think of as like a list or table of all the fundamental particles that we know about. Those quarks we talked about before are in there, electrons, a few of their cousins, there's about a dozen things in all that like mm. describe all the particles that we're pretty sure make up all the regular stuff. If we look through that table and we're like, do any of these particles have mass but not interact with photons? Guess what? None of them do. So what does that tell us that dark matter has to be? Not a known particle? Something new, a new yeah. kind of particle, absolutely. Uh, there are two main candidate types of particles for dark matter, and we're going to talk about them in a bit more detail in the second half of the show. I'm just going to give you a brief intro to them now. The first candidate group of particles is called WIMPs. Wimps? Yeah, what that's their actual name. I know. When you're a physicist, you really love to get silly with it. Like the, the names of everything are like horrible backronyms. They come up with the thing they want to say and then they like make an acronym out of it. Ah. WIMP stands for weakly interacting massive particle. So it's very descriptive, right? It interacts weakly with the regular matter and it has mass. And when we say massive, we mean like 10 to 100 giga electron volts, which means about 10 or 100 times as much as the mass of a proton. And Whoa. we don't actually know what the mass is, which, as it turns out, is a huge fucking problem. It makes it really, really hard to detect if you don't know the mass of the particle. Yeah. But we'll come back to that a little bit later. So uh, that's WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. We didn't just make them up to explain dark matter. They actually came from this other thing called supersymmetry, which is this really nice uh, candidate theory for what we call a grand unified theory or a theory of everything. You seen that, that movie? That was a movie! Yeah! Starring Eddie Redmayne, I know the this! movie with Eddie Redman <laughs> playing Stephen Hawking, and he's trying to find the theory of everything. One mathematical theory that describes everything in the universe, right? Did he right? do that? Nobody's done it yet. Oh. So we don't currently have a grand unified theory or a theory of everything 
But this framework called supersymmetry is like a candidate for being that theory of everything. It's and like our best guess? Not our best guess. <laughs> it's like our of, third best I'm guess? I'm a little bit biased. It's one <laughs> of our best guesses okay. as to a possible grand unified theory. And when you look at supersymmetry and you say, what should happen if supersymmetry is tr true? It spits out these particles that we call wimps, which have the exact properties we want dark matter to have. So we go, oh, two birds, one stone. Let's go looking for those. We can detect dark matter, figure out what it is, and also see if supersymmetry is true. Make well, sense? Yes. Okay. These particles are historically very popular as a dark matter candidate. People have been looking for them since, like, I feel like the 60s or maybe the 70s, like quite a long time. Uh, lots of different detectors, and it's been like a historically very well-funded field. We'll talk about it right after our uh, interview in the middle of the show. But as time goes on, more candidates have emerged because no one's detected a wimp just yet. You might go to any physics lab and think you'd find some, right? Oh, um, self-burn, that's yep. rare. That's, <laughs> Uh, okay, so the, like, well, I'm a bit biased again, but the emergingly popular candidate for dark matter is this other particle called an axion, which is similar to a wimp, but much, much lighter. And less so, weirdly named. Yes. Well, actually, axion's funny. I wasn't going to mention this, but they're actually named after a variety of dish soap that was no. sitting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like the guy who proposed them had like always had this brand of dish soap and he'd always been like, that'd be a great name for a particle. And then he, he came up with a particle and he was like, axion, I've like, done I it. I feel like scientists should have like consultants from like creative fields to help them with no, this. No, it's the Wild West, baby. If you come up with it, it's all yours. You can call it what you like. If you're first to publish... It can be called the mechanical I mean, that's like from biology when you can just like discover an animal and you just get to name it whatever you want, whatever you want. <laughs> I think there's a bunch named after celebrities. Oh, very and good. And touchingly, um, a researcher I know once named a fossil after his wife. It's oh, very sweet. dang. You're like these dead old bones, honey. <laughs> All right, um, it was a dead fish as well. Oh, wow. Aww. That's actually maybe a burn. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk a bit more about wimps and axions and where they come from and how we try and detect them in the second half of the show. But in the meantime, I think it's time for something a little bit different. It's time for something different. Yeah. Okay. Can we please get our special guest, Laura Skates, on stage? Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for being here. Just going to get Thanks up on this mic me. here. Now, I'm particularly excited that you're here because I didn't tell you this before, but I have recently become a plant mom myself. I have just, I own my first two plants and I'm really excited. And so you have a bit of a green thumb as well. Is that right? Um, kind of. So I'm a botanist, which uh -huh. means that I study the science of plants, but I'm not a very good gardener. <gasps> hey, I'm me sorry. too. Oh, that's good. But I'm not a botanist, so maybe that's less bad for me. But yeah, hey, great. So you're a botanist. What do you specifically do within the field of botany? Uh, so I'm working on my PhD uh, on carnivorous plants. Um, and yeah. can I just say that she's wearing a fantastic dress tonight yep. featuring Native carnivorous plants. plants. Are they so carnivorous? good. Yeah, that's Ooh, a Venus flytrap, isn't it? Talk to Laura after the show if you want to see the carnivorous plant dress. <laughs> yes, I would get up, but I'm worried there's so many wires. There are a lot of cables <laughs> it's down It's very here. dangerous. Yeah, I had to do here. the sound patching myself, okay? I'm a, I'm a physicist, I'm not a sound guy. Right. Um, cool, so what do you do in your PhD research on carnivorous plants? Uh, so I'm basically looking at their ecology. Um, what does that mean? So ecology is like the study of organisms or you know, plants and animals and how they interact with each other and with their environment. Um, and I'm looking specifically at their nutrition. So how much do these carnivorous plants rely on catching prey 
to get the nutrients they need. So in my mind, they're just constantly like nomming down on like flies and ants. But so have you figured out the answer to that yet? Because I'm really curious because I, you imagine a fly would like be a lot of nutrients for these guys, right? Um, yeah, definitely can be. I mean, I guess the answer is that it depends, um, which I know is a cop-out, but... <laughs> that's, that's all of science, yeah. let's be real. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, part of the thing is there's actually nearly 800 different species of carnivorous plants. So it's not just those guys from Mario who shoot the fireballs? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, the Venus flytrap, yeah, is probably the most famous, but there's so many more. Do you have, like, a favourite one? Um, Probably one called Biblis. Which Biblis. Is that an individual that plant you named Biblis or a species? Because <laughs> I've got to say. <laughs> it's a genus. Name. Okay. okay. Right. So there's like eight species of Biblis. Okay. Oh. Their common name is rainbow plants because uh, their kind of trap is a sticky trap, um, mm-hmm. which means that they're covered in kind of hair that has little sticky dewdrops on it. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of shine in the sun and apparently look a bit like a rainbow. And you're trying to determine, like, how much of their nutrition they get from bugs versus they get from other places, right? Yeah, versus they get from the soil. Okay, fantastic. How close have you gotten in your experience to a Little Shop of Horrors type scenario? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Luckily, most carnivorous plants are pretty small, um, so they're not going to be capturing any humans. Okay. Um, Yeah, so don't worry. You're safe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So what do you think is the most interesting fact about carnivorous plants? Oh, God. Um, that is hard. This is, there's a right answer here. <laughs> is there? Is there? <laughs> no, I was just putting extra pressure on. Okay. Um, well, I think one of the most interesting things is that carnivorous plants didn't evolve just once. They've really? actually evolved ten different times. Whoa. Ten different times. At is that least, like in Pokemon yeah. where you have multiple evolutions of the same kind of Pokemon? Or? Well, you know Victory Bell? Yeah! Yeah. So hey! That's, that's based on a real-life carnivorous plant. Oh, yeah. Sweet. yeah, which wow. is a kind of pitcher plant. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, so they evolved like independently of each other in different places? Or? Yeah, so, oh, that's awesome. so there's been lots of different times when carnivorous plants have evolved independently, different taxonomic families and orders. And they have lots of different types of traps that they use to capture insects. And so, other are things. you working on local, like Australian plants, or is it more of a global type study? I'm mostly looking at Australian ones, um, but I have done a bit of collaboration to look at some in Spain, um, ooh, things like that. Ooh. I didn't get to go to Spain, sadly. That is oh, a shame. Yeah, they just but... ship the plants here. Yes, that's <laughs> far well, less yeah. exciting. <laughs> Where yeah. has the most carnivorous carnivorous plants? Western Australia. Oh, shit. So you're in the right spot. Hey, WA Pride. (laughs) Our plants will eat you. Could could a plant ever eat a person? Uh, I would say not, although there have been plenty of people who have sort of experimented by putting their finger in a trap for however long they can be bothered. But um, really? Yeah, just. How long? I think that they give up after a few hours. That's some Barry Marshall drinking the, like, helio-bagza thing to, what's it called? H. pylori. Sorry, I can see there's someone nodding at me. That's like (laughs) Barry Marshall giving himself a disease to cure it. It's like waiting for a plant to eat you. Yes. Yeah. There are, people have done all sorts of weird things. Um, I did read a blog post once where someone took, like, fingernails and put it into the plants and just saw what happened. That wasn't really scientific, but... (laughs) Sure. What happened? <laughs> uh, not much, because the fingernails not take a, good a long bit of time. The meat. Yeah. 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 What if you gave it like a little bit of beef or something? Then it would probably yeah. break yeah. that down. So it, yeah. would, it would eat human meat if you gave well, it a little bit of human meat. If you gave it a little bit, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So plants can have a little human meat. Yeah, is yeah. What I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Very good. Very worrying. Fantastic. Wow. That's great news. Hey, thank you so much. That's um, all right. We'll get you back up at the end of the show for science fiction versus science faction. In the meantime, a big hand for Laura, please. Thank you. Well, if I wasn't scared of carnivorous plants before, I am now. What? Especially here. Like, this yeah. is, I was in this the is... botanical gardens today. <laughs> I was putting myself in danger. There's probably somebody there distributing uh, some, some objects. Um, okay, great. So, who's ready to hear more about dark matter? Me. Shit that's passing through you right now. Very good. So, we're going to talk about wimps first, and we're going to talk about how wimps might be detected, and potentially some interesting stuff that's going on in the wimp detection field. So, I mentioned before, wimps. Very descriptive name, also a very stupid name, because physicists love to do that. So, how might you detect a wimp, this weakly interacting massive particle which is motivated by supersymmetry, one of these candidate theories for a grand unified theory? How do you go about detecting it? It's like a couple of times or maybe a hundred times heavier than a proton. It's moving right through you. What you have to do is rely on the very weak interaction that is in the name wimp, because there is a very small non-zero chance that a wimp passing through your body or passing through any matter will bump into a nucleus of regular matter, like an an atom within your body, and impart a little bit of energy. In fact, it's almost certainly happening like sometime throughout the year. You've probably been bumped into by a wimp if wimps exist. So wait, does that mean like if I like trip or like make a fool of myself, I could be like, oh, sorry guys, that was just like a wimp. I just got hit by a wimp. It happens a lot. You might want to give it a more imposing name so that it sounds a little bit less (laughs) embarrassing. I'll call it an axion. Yeah, well, axions don't do that, but we'll come back to that. So, I don't. Yeah. I, I feel like I could just get away with it, though. Yeah, I feel Unless like I'm you talking could, to like you or your yeah, lab. Yeah, you could honestly just say whatever. <laughs> I don't think anyone would know. Okay, so there's a small chance that one of these wimps is going to bump into one of the nuclei in your body. So what you do is you get a detector and you make it a lot, 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 lot of atoms. Like billions and billions and billions and billions of atoms. And then you basically wait for a wimp to come along and bump into one of those atoms and give it a little bit of energy. And when it gives it that energy, there's a couple of different things that could happen. The first thing is the atom that gets bumped becomes excited. That's what we call it. It has extra energy. It's a little bit excited. And atoms don't like being excited. When they get excited, they like to decay and emit that extra energy as a photon, a particle of light, which we can then detect. So you sit there, you have your big tank full of material. Usually it's a noble gas like xenon or something. Um, Xenon? Yeah, it's one of the elements. It's similar to like neon that's in neon lights and stuff, but it's just like a little bit heavier. And you have the xenon sitting in this tank and like it gets bumped and maybe it spits out a bit of light. The other thing that could happen is it can heat up the material that it hits like a tiny bit and you measure that temperature change. The reason for that is when a wimp comes in and bumps an atom, it it jiggles around and then that jiggle might jiggle the next atom and that jiggle might jiggle the next atom. And that's really what temperature is. Like heat is just, like how hot something is is really just a measure of how wiggly the particles are inside it. The hotter a thing gets, the jigglier the atoms are inside the material. So it's like when you're at like a house party and like the better the music is, it heats up as everyone just just, put on Lizzo. Everyone's going off. Yeah, absolutely. We were having a dance party earlier. It's it's heating. Yeah, (laughs) it's heating up. Uh, Okay, so that's another thing you can do is is detect a little bit of heat imparted into your material. Mm -hmm. The last thing you could look for is electrons because maybe, just maybe, the atom gets hit hard enough that one of the electrons inside the atom gets enough energy and it's like, ha, goodbye atom, I've got enough energy now that I can break free and shoot off to be detected by a detector. So that's the the three things you'd look for. So light, heat, Heat, electrons. electrons. Right. 
Now, the problem is that the size of the signals, the size of these light or heat or electron signals that you expect when one of your particles gets bumped by dark matter is really, 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 really small. So you need extremely sensitive detectors for that light or that heat or for those electrons. So that's like a large field of research is building the detectors that can actually measure the light or the heat or the electrons that come out. Another thing you have to do is, because we're looking for such tiny signals, there are lots of things that aren't wimps that are also capable of imparting small amounts of energy to atoms, which can completely wash out your ability to see the thing. An example of this is cosmic rays. So all the time, like maybe sometime today, you've been bombarded by particles from space. High-energy particles, muons and stuff like that. Uh, muons? Just, yeah, other things from the SM of PP Ugh. that are just hanging out in space and sometimes hitting the Earth with high energy and they might bump into one of the atoms in your body and give it a bit of energy. I feel like now, all I'm learning today is that I'm constantly being just bombarded, bombarded yes. by various universe, things from yeah. space all Absolutely. the time. Space doesn't give us any like shelter. No, no, no. We're always being bombarded by shit. And so... The thing is, although the amount of energy that like happens to you if you get hit by a cosmic ray is small, it's way more than the amount, or at least similar to the amount you would expect like a wimp to, to do. So okay. it's hard to detect if there are cosmic rays happening. So you take your big tank of liquid xenon and you put it deep, 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 deep underground in an abandoned gold mine usually. So a lot of the times these are like massive infrastructure projects. They've got to take over an abandoned gold mine. They've got to build a whole science lab down there. They've got to get an elevator that's, you know, oh, safe enough so to transport spooky. people in and out. I like yeah. it. And then you've got to shield it with lead and big tanks of water to like shield all the cosmic rays and everything from the environment. And then you just wait. Probably the best example of this is the large, uh, it's called Lux Zeppelin, very cool name, kind of like Led Zeppelin, another band name perhaps, stands for Large Underground Xenon Zoned Something Something Something, it's a backronym, Lux Zeppelin Experiment, you can look it up, or LZ or LZ for short, depending on uh, which continent you come from. It's in a gold mine in South Dakota, and it's just waiting for dark matter particles, wimps, to, to jostle one of the 40 tons of liquid xenon that's wow. down there and give it a little bit of energy so it can be detected. So is it, does someone have to be like watching it or did they just like set it all up and then just be like, all right, tell us when something happens. Yeah, I mean, there's Bye. usually someone down there like for operational sake, but mm -hmm. like it's all being like recorded. It's not like if it happens and no one's there, we're never going to know. <laughs> like, <laughs> over Christmas, dark matter could be happening all the time. Uh, okay, so... There is like at least one really promising smoking gun in WIMPs. There's this experiment called Dharma Libra, which is an Italian experiment at the Grand Sasso Laboratory. So mm. props to me for remembering that. <laughs> um, it's an experiment that is doing the same kind of stuff as all the other WIMP experiments, but they're doing something really clever where they're exploiting what we call the annual modulation in the WIMP signal. So like when we're detecting WIMPs, what we're looking for is collisions. So the size of the energy imparted depends on like how fast we're moving with respect to the WIMP. And because the Earth is orbiting the Sun, and the WIMPs aren't orbiting the Sun, as we orbit the Sun, at different times of year, we're moving faster or slower, like, into the WIMPs. Because, ah. like, so the Sun's moving around the center of the galaxy, the WIMPs aren't moving. So we're always moving into the wind of WIMPs with, like, a fixed velocity. The wind as, of WIMPs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yes. So we're moving into a wind of dark matter with, like, the velocity of the Sun going around the center of the galaxy. And then on top of that, we're also orbiting the Sun. So at some points in the year, we're moving into the WIMPs faster, and at some points, we're moving in slower, which means you would expect to see like an annual modulation in the strength of the WIMP signal that you record. 
And the cool thing about doing that is, even if you don't like detect anything with like a strong enough signal to noise ratio that you can claim like, oh, I've definitely detected a wimp here. If you can see like in your like background count rates, like the, 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 the detections that aren't strong enough to say conclusively, if you can see in those, this annual modulation signature, mm -hmm. you can say, oh, maybe that is actually a wimp. So it's a really clever way of processing the data. And the weird thing is that like Dharma Libra actually claims that they've seen this annual modulation. They've got about 10 years of data and you can wow. see this really nice like curvy modulation. So it causes people to go like, maybe we have actually detected wimps. But obviously there are a lot of criticisms you can levy at this experiment because there are a lot of things that vary with the time of year, not just the flux of wimps. Ah. It could be some temperature effect. It could be something to do with the thinning of the atmosphere, meaning there's more muons coming in from space and creating false backgrounds. So what we need to do is build a detector in the southern hemisphere and do the same experiment. And then if we see the same modulation at the same time, like it's stronger at the same time in south, the southern hemisphere as it is in the northern hemisphere, then we're pretty sure it's going to be something from space, something not related to the seasons. But if we see the same modulation, but like what we would call out of phase, so it's getting weaker down here when it's getting stronger like up there. Like the opposite, like yeah, seasons. Then yeah. we would say it's a seasonal effect. So uh. I'm happy to tell you that that experiment is actually being built right now in Victoria. It's called Sabre. It should be coming online in the next few years. It's That's part really of, exciting. Yeah, it's part of the Australian government's new Center of Excellence for Dark Matter Particle Physics. So it's being built right now in a gold mine in Stall in Victoria. So in a couple of years, we might actually have an answer as to whether Dharma's like seeing wimps wow. or whether it's just some kind of seasonal effect. Either way, needs to be done. Can I ask, is it always gold mines? Like, why? <laughs> why? Like, there's lots of other kinds of old abandoned mines. Yeah. Like, they're definitely the coolest mine to be <laughs> in. But, like, is there a reason? Like, um, is that a good element to be surrounding yourself by? Like, positive vibes? or? <laughs> it's a great question. I don't actually know. I assume they probably <laughs> would use other kinds of mines. I just know that the one that's being built here is in a gold mine, mm. and the other one is also in a gold mine. I'm pretty sure Grand Sasso is not a gold mine. So I think it is just, like, anything deep underground. But All right. Good question. Maybe Google that one. Okay. Uh, okay, so that's WIMPs. That's what's going on in that field. Now I'd like to talk to you about axions, the other kind of dark matter that we flagged before. The dish soap one. Yes, the dish soap I'm one. I'm never going to get over that. That's right. We talked about them before. They're another kind of dark matter that's becoming emergingly popular. Uh, so in the last couple of decades, there's been more and more experiments getting into axions. And full disclosure, it's what I actually do. So if I seem a bit biased, that's probably why. Um, the main difference between WIMPs and axions is that axions are much, much lighter. Again, we don't know the mass, but whilst a WIMP might be like 10 or 100 or a couple hundred times the mass of a proton, an axion should be much, much lighter than even a single electron. So like, just suffice to say, much, much lighter, much smaller particles. Um, and we don't try and detect them by them scattering off nuclei because for one thing, we don't necessarily know if they would. And for another thing, they would never impart enough energy because they're too light. So okay. we can't really rely on the same kinds of technologies for detecting axions. I will tell you a bit about why axions are a good particle to be looking for. So we talked about how uh, WIMPs are motivated by supersymmetry. Axions are motivated by this other thing that I'm not going to go into because it's kind of boring and I don't have time, but it's called the strong CP problem. CP in this context stands for charge parity. It's something to do, it's like a, a big, big problem in particle physics. It's actually one of the biggest ones. If you ask particle physicists, like, what are the major outstanding problems with the way we understand particles today, they'll tell you strong CP problem. It's a big one. It's to do with the way the particles that make up atoms behave. Okay. And it turns out that if you introduce this new particle, which they later called an axion, it just like completely wipes out the strong CP problem, annihilates it. It no longer exists. And when you look at the properties you expect that axion to have, they match exactly with the properties we want dark matter to have. So again, two birds, one stone. We go, this is a cool particle to go looking for. How do you go looking for it? Well, 
unlike looking for scattering, the really nice thing about axions, the reason we like them, the reason they're cool guys, is that axions have a very weak interaction with photons, our favorite particle from before, particles of light. So we expect that axions should be able to convert into tiny little flashes of light, which is incredible because as a species, the thing that we are best at detecting is light. Our eyes are light detectors, your mobile phones detecting radio waves, which are a kind of light. We've got really, really good cameras at this point, like really amazing telescopes. We're really good at detecting tiny flashes of light. So with axions, we can take something that we have no chance of seeing directly in the form of dark matter and forcing it to dump all of its energy into something we're great at detecting, which is light. So it's really, really promising. Okay. How do you go about doing that? Converting the energy into light? Well, you have to turn on a big, strong magnet. That's what the theory tells us, that if you turn on a really strong magnetic field, like the kind you would use in a junkyard to pick up a car, but like 10 or 15 times stronger than that, and then you've got that in a lab somewhere, and axions are passing through that magnetic field, some percentage of them should convert into little flashes of light. Does that make sense? Yes. And so then, you're using a super, super strong magnet, uh -huh. and that's going to help you detect the light, the small little lights. It's going to make the light. Make the so lights. So like the axions are passing through the magnet, they interact with the magnet, and they convert into light. They dump okay. all of their energy into a particle of light that we can then detect. So we're taking dark matter, and we're shining a light on it, if you like. Isn't that like dangerous Thank to you. have a giant magnet, car magnet in a lab? Yeah, it can be pretty dangerous. You have to put lines on the ground that are like, don't go past here if you've got a pacemaker because oh. you will die. That's a real oh thing. God. Sometimes if the field's at high magnetic, at the magnet's at high field and you walk past holding like a stainless steel spanner, choo, it'll come off your hand and like wow. whack onto the magnet. It can be pretty dangerous. A yeah. spanner is a wrench for those Americans in the audience. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said a gun or something. No. <laughs> Done better with that one. Um, there are okay. other things in America besides guns. Okay, if you say so, Taryn. All evidence to the contrary. Um, okay, so you turn on the big magnet, the dark matter comes through, some of it converts into a little flash of light, and then you detect that light. Now, there's a problem with doing this. Remember when I said we don't know the mass of the axion? What yes. that means is we don't know the frequency or color of the light that it's going to produce. And that makes it really difficult to detect because it's really hard to build a detector for a kind of light of unknown frequency. And the range of allowed frequencies is really, really big. It's from like all the way down in like the radio waves, like the kind of waves that your car radio tunes into, all the way up to like X-rays, like high, high energy radiation. You need like detectors spanning this entire enormous mass range in order to try and see if you can find an axion. So what we need is lots of different experiments because you can only build a light detector that's sensitive in one place at a time. Oh, really? Yeah. So you couldn't have one that you could just kind of like dial up and then dial uh, down. That's a very theorist response. So like the people <laughs> who proposed these experiments, they're like, what are you doing? We told you like 40 years ago it was going to turn into light. Just look for the light. And then the people who spend their time in the lab, like me, are like, oh yeah, just look for the light, should we? Okay. Oh, just make it a tunable detector, shall we? Okay. 10 orders of magnitude? No worries. It's going to be fine. I can tell so, this is a sensitive Yeah. So, <laughs> we need lots of different detectors looking at lots of different frequencies. Okay. The state-of-the-art kind of detector is called a halosquare so named because it looks for axions in the galactic halo, the halo of dark matter that we're currently sitting inside. I'm going to tell you Is about... Is there a different not halo of dark matter? There are other <laughs> kinds of dark matter that you could imagine having. Sometimes there might be 
what are called dark matter streams, which are like really high density regions of dark matter. You could also think about producing dark matter in the lab because this axion-photon interaction actually goes both ways. You can turn light back into axions. Whoa. So this type of experiment, a haloscope, is detecting the dark matter that's already there. That's what you need to do. Okay, we're not trying to you. make it. We're not trying to find like high density regions. We're looking for the stuff that's just passing through the lab for free. Okay. So <laughs> There's two haloscopes I'm going to mention. The first one is called ADMX. It stands for Axion Dark Matter Experiment. They got the most boring and straightforward acronym because they were first. <laughs> and that experiment is based in at the University of Washington in Seattle in the United States of America. And they've gotten really, 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 really sensitive to axions. They're at the point now with their experiment, which is operational as we speak, that like if they're looking in the right frequency range and there are axions there, they will see them. They've like got that wow. sensitive. It's really exciting times for axions. They're looking for comparatively low mass axions. Now I'm going to tell you about the organ experiment. This is my I know work. this one. Oh, how do you know this one? Because I got to go see it for real the other day. Yeah, that's right. So I work on this thing called the organ experiment with the ARC Center of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. Check them out at equus.org. Um, <laughs> We are trying to detect comparatively high mass dark matter. It's a similar experiment to ADMX. It uses the same kind of experimental principles, but at much, much higher masses, which means much higher photon frequencies. Now, it turns out that when you try and build one of these haloscopes at high masses, everything conspires against you. There's a lot of technical difficulties. It's like orders of magnitude more difficult to do the detections up in these high mass ranges. But somebody's got to do it because, as it turns out, there are also, whilst we don't know the mass, Similar to like how Dama Libra result is kind of like a smoking gun for wimps, there are some smoking guns for axions that kind of point at the high mass region as being a little bit more well-motivated ah. theoretically than down or ADMX are looking. So we believe that axions could be in this range, so we want to build a detector, but it's really fucking hard, and that's my job, is to try and build the detector to do the thing in the high mass range. So that's Organ through Equus. It's coming online later this year, and again, maybe in a couple of years, we'll have some results. We'll know whether those smoking guns that told us that we should look in this particular range are accurate, or whether they're just a false flag. So is this sort of like a like an arms race, where like it's like you versus the University of Washington, and you're like, gotta figure out where the axions are? Given, or are you like collaborating and being nice about given it? Given they are our collaborators, I would <laughs> say it's an arms race. Okay. I wouldn't say that in a medium that's recorded and for publication. Um, <laughs> but no, really fundamentally, we are friends. We're looking in different mass ranges. So like, and could it be possible that like axions could be small and large? Or is it like one of you is going to be right We could also both be wrong, but yeah, Uh, yeah. uh, no, absolutely. Some people believe that there might be multiple axion-like particles, as they call them, that could make up the dark matter. There could be a whole axiverse, is what they call it, like a whole zoo of different axion particles. Because, I mean, if you think about it, we know there's like a dozen or so standard model particles that make up the 5% of stuff we know so about. So why wouldn't there be more than one why kind of Why wouldn't there be a particle? lot of kinds of dark matter, yeah. right? I mean, there very well could be. Lots and lots of different dark matter particles. I hope so. Um, Everyone can share in the scientific love. Exactly. But yeah. hey, this organ detector, it's right down the road. It's here in your home state of West Australia and your home city of Perth. So hopefully you think that's cool. The last thing I want to talk about before we get into... Uh, our fun little game, science fiction versus science faction, is why we should care about this at all. Yeah, so I've been meaning to ask you that, Ben. Yeah, no, I mean, it's (laughs) a fair enough question. Why? I mean, aside from the fact that it's enormous, in fact, it's most of the stuff that there is in the universe, and understanding it will help us understand how the universe formed and how it evolved and how we got to where we are today. Aside from those reasons, which, if you ask me, are good reasons on their own, there are two kinds of answers you can make. Those guys love that reason. Um... (laughs) Okay, the first kind of reason is is somewhat philosophical. So this is the idea that 
it's kind of in human nature to want to explore. It's like really baked into our DNA to try and find out more about the universe. And in terms of like things we don't know about the universe, this is like a massive, enormous, glaring blank spot on the map. It's like five times as much as all the stuff that we know a lot about. So like, what the fuck? We should try and figure out what it is, right? Kind of scary to think that we don't even have a clue what it is. Yeah. But there are also more practical answers as well. So the first kind of practical answer comes from what we call spin-off technology. So most of the technology that we take for granted today, most of the stuff that's in your mobile phone, in a computer, a lot of medical technology, came as spin-off technology from doing fundamental physics experiments. A lot of stuff came from, sadly, the nuclear arms race. A lot of stuff came from NASA's work during the space race. And the way I describe it when people are like, oh, why didn't they just research that stuff, is because you don't know to research that stuff. If you only research mm. stuff that you knew the answers to, you'd never discover anything. You've got to pull on the threads of things that you don't understand, and then you accidentally discover shit that's useful. Nobody sat down like 50 years ago and said, I'm going to make something that's going to lead to something else that's going to lead to something else that might one day be a small part of an iPhone. It's never been done. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's not how you discover things that make technology advance. You've just got to pull at the threads and find what you find. Um, Isn't that how they found Wi-Fi? I feel like there's a story of like, I know Cyro did some work with Wi-Fi, but like they didn't know it, that's what it was at the time. So there's a fun story about like um, transmission of data through things like Wi-Fi, like radio waves. Yeah. But like the guy who first generated and then detected radio waves, this guy called Heinrich Hertz, he had like a... Yeah, well, that's what the Hertz unit is Did named after. Did he name it after himself? I don't know if he named it after himself, but somebody named it after him for sure. Um, he had a, like a journalist down in his lab right after he'd made this detection, and the journalist was like, hey, Heinrich Hertz, why are you doing this? Like, what does it matter? Like, why have you generated a radio wave over here and shot it over there? And he's like, no reason, just thought it was cool. <laughs> and if we didn't have Heinrich Hertz thinking it was cool, we wouldn't have any of the modern communication technology that we take for granted. So you got to do this kind of shit. You just got to fumble around in the dark and see what's out there. There are a few slightly even more practical answers that I can give you, though. It can be a bit hard to say because we don't know what the dark matter is yet. But if the dark matter is axions, for example, the way we're trying to detect it is by converting it into light, which is electromagnetic energy. And we know there's a lot, lot, lot of it out there. So if we had a way to reliably convert axion dark matter into electromagnetic energy that we could then harness, we might have a completely environmentally wow. safe energy generation technique, which is why the Department of Energy in your home country, Taryn, has invested a lot of money <laughs> in these axion dark matter experiments because it is really possible that like, if we could convert all the axion mass energy into light, like we'd be cool for energy for a while. For and, like uh, ever. Yeah, for like ever. And we wouldn't need any kinds of fossil fuels or anything like that. Uh, also, there are some proposals for using axions and their photon coupling in communication technology. They're a little bit more arcane. I'm not going to get too in the weeds on that. Uh, but people believe that because we can turn axions into photons and back into axions, uh, you could like encode information in axions the same way you encode information in photons and then shoot them around in ways that they can't be detected or intercepted or anything like that. So wow. there are some like slightly more out there proposals proposals for doing stuff like that. But let me leave you with this. Think about everything we've done as a species with one-sixth of all the matter in the universe. Computers, modern medicine, space travel, every piece of literature that's ever moved you. And imagine what we could do if we unlocked the remaining five-sixths of the matter in the universe, because we really have no idea what it is at the moment. So hopefully that's convinced you that searching for dark matter is a good thing to do, and hopefully you're interested in finding out a bit more yourself. But for the meantime, that's all I have to say about it. So I think it's time for our game. What do you think, Terry? I am very excited for the very game. Very good. Can we please get our research assistant, Nula, and our special guest, Laura, back on stage for science fiction versus science fiction?
Thank you. Hello, hello. I'm Nula and I'm going to be running this little game, Science Fiction vs. Science Faction. So the way this works is I'm going to read out my questions here and it's host versus guests versus audience. So the host... We need to work together because we're dumb. <laughs> we are so bad at this game, guys. Like, it might even be better to work apart because you yeah. haven't been doing well as a team. We have been fucking each other up a lot as well. Like, there's been multiple times where Taryn's like, it's definitely A, and I'm like, no, it's not, you idiot, and then it was A, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's glad that we can't hear those talks, so you just both look bad together. Exactly. So they will write their answers on their little pieces of paper in front of them, and once they have come to... To a decision, I'll turn it over to you. Read out each of the answers. Whichever one gets the loudest cheer is your vote. And then we see if democracy works and if you're right. <laughs> and it's like a two truths and a lie type thing, right? Like you've made up some science bullshit. Yeah, some yeah, science yeah. fiction and some science faction, if you like. Yeah. We've got to try and figure out which ones are real. Okay, so the first one. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Okay. Which is the correct name for a collection of ravens? A... A shrewdness, B, an unkindness, C, a conspiracy. So you're looking for the correct name. They're all just so nice, though. <laughs> How are you getting on with that one? Don't tell us yet, but do you think you know it? I think I might know it, yeah. You know it? yeah. Very good. Okay, okay, are you settled? You got your answers? We're settled. We are settled. Okay, audience, what do you think? What is the correct name for a collection of ravens is it a a shrewdness no okay b an unkindness less confident than i was <laughs> c a conspiracy oh oh okay i think i'm gonna go with c there i think yeah. that, yeah, was, that, was, a c. that yeah, was a yeah c. yeah yeah well we also went c a conspiracy laura also went c yes i did Oh, well, you were all wrong. <laughs> Got him. It's B, an unkindness. Oh, and unkindness of Raven. So, yeah, there were a lot of you who were right, and you should feel good about yourselves. Yeah. Can I just say, we had a show last night on animal intelligence, and I would not say that kindness is the first thing that I would describe. Unkindness. Oh, unkind. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kindness. I'm sorry, maybe you should pay more. <laughs> maybe it's like an I accent said. thing. Um, I also just want to highlight the degree of glee that Nula has in her eyes when she lets everyone know that they're wrong. Like, seriously, watch out for it next time. I'm just always, I'm too scared that people will get them right. I'm yeah, like, no, right. I want to bullshit you. I want you. Good, good, good. Okay, okay. Question two. This is two truths and a lie. A, lunar moths do not have a mouth. B, snails can sleep for three years. Or C, a baby lemur is called a lemu. Oh. I hope C is true. I hope it is. Okay. I think it's easy to see. Pick, pick the lie. Are we good on stage? Do you think you know good? this one? Yeah, maybe. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Feeling yeah, confident. Yeah, yeah. We got it locked in, locked in. Locked in. Okay. Audience, which one of these is a lie? A, lunar moths. Do not have a mouth. B. A snail can sleep for three years. C. A baby lemur is called a lemu. I'm not. I'm I think not that sure. was C. I think it was C. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Audience. Uh, hosts. What did you get? We went with B because I really hope a baby lemur is called a lemu. <laughs> 
I went with A, but this is animals and not plants, so I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> How did everyone do? That's oh, ABC. It's a three-way split. Someone's got to be right. Oh, well, good news, audience. Fuck. <laughs> I'm, I hate to break it to you, but I made it up. Baby lemurs are not called lemurs. See? They're just called babies, which is disappointing, and so, I'm sorry. So whilst a snail can sleep for three years, the question is, should a snail sleep for three years? Well, I... I spent a long time researching this. I can actually tell you why. Oh, please do. Can, please do, you, do, yeah. do we have time? Yeah, yeah. we got well, time. just quickly, because apparently it depends on environmental conditions. So if, like, the conditions of the environment aren't good for the snail, it'll just keep sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> it'll just keep sleeping until that's, it's like, no, you know what, it's a nice enough day for me to get out of bed. That's one way to survive. Yeah. Respect the snail. I mean, they've got that <laughs> shell, right? So good yeah. for them. Okay, we got time for one more? I think we do. Have you got a third one? I do have a third one. Very good. Bring yeah. it on. Okay, okay. This one's a bit of a chemistry one for Ooh. you. Okay, there is one letter. Zero chemists on stage. <laughs> <laughs> there is one letter in the English alphabet that does not appear on the periodic table as a symbol. Which of the following is it? Is it A? J, that's not going to work. Is it J, P, or V? All right. I'm feeling pretty good about this one. Oh, yeah, How are oh, you yeah. feeling? I think I know it. Okay. Okay, yeah, okay. Okay. She's okay, also feeling okay. Good. Which one of these does not appear on the periodic table? Is it J? <laughs> P? A lot of J heads out there. Yeah. V. <laughs> okay. 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 What do we get on the stage here? We said J. I also said Jay. Okay. See, now I feel like the fool. You're all right. <laughs> well done. You clearly uh, all know your chemistry. I'm and so I'm glad we could finally show Noel up with the last question of this entire run of the show. Thank you, everybody, for that. Thank you, Noel, and thank you, thank Laura. Thank you for having me. And that's the end of our game. Cheers. Before you run off, Laura, is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can the people find out more about you or your work? Uh, I guess you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, if you like. I'm at Skates. Oh, that's a really fun... Yeah. Yeah, How good is like that? that? Laura Skates becomes Flora Skates when she's Plant Girl. I'm a big fan of it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you very you much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. is our show. Thank you so much for coming along. Uh, thank you so much because this is the last night of our show to our excellent production team. We have Nula Chapel, who is doing research for us. We have Lily Prodder, our producer. Thank you to the person Mess Hall for letting us be here and sweat our butts off trying to tell you guys about science. Indeed. Thank you so much for yeah. coming out and supporting us. It's been wild. Thank you very much. We love you all very much. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Memories. Listen to those crazy kids talking <laughs> way back in 2020, before there was a pandemic. In, uh, you know, they have like? no idea what's coming, I do know, they? I know, they have no idea. Like, it was like January, February 2020, like just before things broke bad. But oh, wow. There you <laughs> those go. Those were the those, days. Nostalgia. Those bright-eyed, bright-eyed children. Anyway, <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Yeah, I mean, I had fun listening back for sure. Definitely re-remembering a lot of things that I remember learning on the spot. 
No, absolutely. Um, I'm glad that you felt like you learned something, and I hope that you, the listener, did as well. Just a reminder, the reason we've put this episode out just two weeks after our last episode is that we are transitioning from an end-of-month release to a mid-month release. So it'll be sort of mm. second Thursday of the month from now. That is to facilitate my life being a bit easier as I continue <laughs> to make another podcast called Naked Astronomy with the Naked Scientists, which is a space science podcast you can check out wherever you would do that. Love it. Yeah, speaking of checking stuff out, you should definitely go check us out on social media at Curio Network on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can get this very show at PrincipalCast on Twitter, or you can check out me personally at Dr. BT McAllister. And I'm at Science Terran. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Um, being an early show, like in the early days of our podcast, those reviews and ratings are really, really, really important. <laughs> or you could just share the show with a friend. That definitely helps us as well. And we love hearing from you. If you've got a topic you think we should cover, or if you've just got some feedback for us, you can get in touch on any of the aforementioned platforms. So we'll be back in about a month with the brand new content that Taryn will be running for us. So Look uh, forward to yeah. it. It's going to be good. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben McAllister. And I'm Taryn Lovenstein. And stay uncertain. Stay uncertain, baby. <laughs>